G'day to you out there, and welcome to the latest mid-month episode of A Year in Horror. Yeah, this is A Year in Horror, a podcast where I pull a random year out of the hat. Then I watch all of the horror films that score three out of five or above from that year. Well, at least the ones that I can source. And then I report back to you lot on what was the best and the worst and everything in between. Only this show today, this is not that. Oh no, this is a mid-month banger. And this is where I rummage through my record collection, pick one out and then listen to that record and then I'll contact that artist and ask them for a chat about horror. It's simple as that. Fingers crossed that they then dig the idea enough to take part and then we go at it. But this one is slightly different. Because this time around, as you do get in this line of work sometimes, I was sent a press release telling me about this new album and single that Steve Hackett was about to release. Now, for my money, the period where Steve was the guitarist in Genesis was their most interesting period, between 71 and 77. We've got Nursery Crime, we've got Foxtrot, Selling England by the Pound, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, A Trick of the Tail. Seminal albums them all. Yeah, they all bear his name, and most importantly, his guitar tones. This isn't my first chat with Steve, though. On the eve of the release of his solo album called Genesis Revisited 2, where he would go into the vaults of his brain, I guess, and then rework the Genesis cuts from his time in the band, I got to interview him for a magazine that I was working for at the time. And, well, I remember being rather fascinated that he had Nick Kershaw on the album as a guest vocalist, but I also think I very much annoyed him a bit, at least a bit, let's say a fair bit, by going on about his much-overlooked 1981 solo album entitled Cured. I've got a big soft spot for that one. Thankfully, though, this time we get into horror, and he knew the agenda before we actually went into it, so I guess that helps. Regardless, this first single from his new album that this press release was going on about, well, it absolutely floored me. In fact, I would say it's my very favourite thing that he's ever put out to his name. And I'm going to play you that thing in full before we go into the chat. It's called People of the Smoke. His new studio album called The Circus and the Night Whale, that'll have been out a few days. I've heard it all back to front several times. If you're into prog, then I can truly, truly recommend it. But we'll get into that in a minute. Also, I'd really love you to head over to A Year in Horror's Patreon page, where I put up at least four new episodes for you every month. We did, unfortunately, very sadly, I I did weep. Uh, We had a few that left us over Christmas, and I get that. Times are really hard. Still, if you enjoy the show and you do want to support it, I'd love to see you over there. It's a £4 price tag, which brings you this month's episodes, plus years worth of back catalogue as well. It just gives you all that bang for your buck. This month, we're going to wrap up the two-year-long series over there where I dug deep on every single prosecuted video nasty title. The final episode in that series, in fact, will air in just a few days if you're listening to this on a day it comes out, where I chat with Shane Mosfin from the Black Video VHS label in depth about the notorious film I Spit on Your Grave. And yeah, as well as those that left... I just want to say massive thanks because we did have several new arrivals as well on Patreon, especially January. Very busy. Thank you so much. So if you're able to join them in this filth, why don't you? You'll find me and them over at patreon.com forward slash a year in horror. Thank you in advance. Paul, he's getting dressed. He can't find a t-shirt. Paul, what you gonna wear? Will it be a large t-shirt? Mr. Puggles, what do you think, Mr. Puggles? 
The film that he chose to speak about was Bram Stoker's Dracula. Although we didn't really go too deep into it, but we did speak a lot about horror and his history with horror. And to be honest, it's such a good one. I just sort of went with the flow. But for those that want a bit more Bram Stoker stuff, well, at the end of the chat with Steve, I've actually placed a piece that Lauren Jane Barnett made for the show back in October 2022. <sighs> so yeah, it's a full, full episode this. Regardless, here's that letterbox synopsis. When Dracula leaves the captive Jonathan Harker in Transylvania for London in search of Mina Harker, the reincarnation of Dracula's long-dead wife, Elizabeth. Obsessed vampire hunter Dr. Van Helsing sets out to end this madness. Now, I personally think that the Dracula film here is a real filmmaker's movie. Full of in-camera practical effects with tons of nods throughout to the history of cinema. In fact, my very favourite scene is the transition of Keanu entering the castle, which then fade cuts into Dracula's huge cape trailing along the floor where the crack of that door was. Plus, also, do not forget that this introduced the world to fake news when Vlad's wife gets sent a message via an arrow by the Turks. Rewatch it, you'll know exactly exactly what I mean. Uh, so let's just get into this thing, shall we? First of all, have a listen right now to the track that inspired me to reach out to Steve in the first place. This is the full four minutes and 50 seconds of the song, People of the Smoke. Enjoy!
Welcome to the show, Steve. How you doing? Very good. Very, very well. Thank you. Yeah. We've just played in with People of the Smoke. Uh, yes. So I've just set that scene there. Talked about yes. it a bit before, but I am totally fascinated by this song. Like, I have listened to it so many times. So I just want to grill oh. you about it a bit, if I may. Sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. In it. I feel like there's elements of prog, classical, rock, even metal. There's Broadway musical stuff going on in my ears. The yeah. vocals, they give me tingles. Oh, good. And yet, it's all so coherent. Um, i I got to know, it's all less than five minutes long as well. It sounds like so much effort to put something like this together. What was your writing process of it? Well, I'd always thought, you know, John Lennon said something very nice about Genesis uh, that I only heard about recently. And he said he thought that Genesis were true sons of the Beatles. And that's the best review I've ever had with a band right. or, or, or on my own. And, and so I thought that there's a lot to live up to there. Um, what with the excitement of the Beatles when they were at their most apparently psychedelic, but most inclusive with music. So you got things that happened in the middle of Beatles tunes that sounded like they were from film soundtracks, or you could wander into a bit of uh, brass band or or or, um, or vaudeville, or you know, Gracie Fields meets Chuck Berry. It was so wide, you know, the, the, the whole thing. So I was trying to devise something at the beginning of the album that would be like a series of trapdoors, really, um, to. Um, invite you in, but then you'd get something different other than what you expected. Now you see it, now you don't, the smoke and mirrors aspect of, of each 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 full start is a kind of illusion, really. So we start with, with radio in 1950, exactly, you know, uh, right. uh, um, a bit of a newscast from that time, a little bit of the advert from the Oval Teenies, uh, the, the Pathé News crowing cockerel, um, and then a snippet from listen with mother are you sitting comfortably long pause then i'll begin now i'll begin and uh, i i don't let her get that far we interrupt with a baby's cry who obviously isn't comfortable and then that baby's cry gets extended and sounds a little bit like a siren over an incoming steam train starting up very slow and then when it gets up to full speed the steam train um, and they were all steam trains when i was born uh that then dictates the pace for an incoming string orchestra at the, at the, at the same moment, big, big Ben strikes. So that keeps up for a while in a Vivaldi-like kind of kind of way. And then uh, it goes to a, um, a rock band, strangely enough, appears yeah. with a rock guitarist. God knows why, but there we are. And, and then the, 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 the lyrics describe London post-war, heavily polluted, London as the, the smoke, the nickname for London. Yeah. Um, heavily populated, a densely populated track with, with lots of surprises, some of which are gentle, most of which are quite abrasive. So I've tried to paint the picture of London post-war, in recovery, lots of bomb sites in Pimlico where I grew up. Um, yeah, so I, I was trying, I was really trying to come up with the soundtrack to an imaginary film. And then Paul Gosling, pal of ours, did a video for it, which seems to have gone viral. So I think I'm very lucky that, that it's it's picked up interest, perhaps with that Beatle thing in mind that could include some other, other things, of course, you know, um, sure. being a fan of barbershop quartets and, and all of that stuff so you get a bit of a cappella singing at one point but then you get the, the guitar pyrotechnics too and the industrial sounds and uh all to sort of energize energize it so it's a kind of companion piece with the uh, with the video that i think he did a very a very nice job on so um it's a nice marriage of visuals and and sound doesn't doesn't feel like a compromise no, at, at no point does it. Like, I'm wondering where in the process of your songwriting of this album did that mm. come? Was it the very first building block of it? Um, well, actually, the very first track to be recorded was something that's crossed between a, a rock song and a love song, and that's Wherever You Are, which appeals, which appears, rather, at the end 
of the album towards the end. It's the penultimate track. And that was the first one I, I undertook because I had a friend of mine lent me one of one of the guitars that Brian May had designed. And I'd worked with Brian in, in, in previous years. And when I was working with it, I thought, great sounding guitar. Doesn't sound like my others. It's got this facility to this upper harmonic. So it really sounds like it's playing an octave up, even though, you know, almost like having an onboard wah wah or something. Very right. Brian May, very exciting, very lovely. So the guitar, when it's got some really alive moments, um, owes that to that to that guitar. So just a little bit of the building blocks of, of the album. It's, it's weird because I feel like with that opening song is so important for the rest of the album to work. It lays the foundation of everything. So I would have thought that like that was your initial spark. Ah, right, I've got something here. But it's oh. interesting to see that's not the case. Well, as soon as as soon as the the, the idea, I, I was talking this over with Joe, my wife, um, about how to do the next rock album, and um, the idea of making it autobiographical came up early on. Then I thought, oh, well, you know, wherever you are, would make a lovely opening track because it's both romantic and rocky. But I realised that I had to come up with something from scratch, which was People of the Smoke, but in a way to devise it, or, or, or it's a bit like self-commissioning for an imaginary film to paint the picture. What was it like there? And maybe also, you know, any sort of developed visual sense that I might have probably stems from my father, who was an artist. He became a professional artist around about the time I became a professional musician. So we were both going through changes from our previous uh, professions. But, you know, he, he'd been able to do wonderful things. Ever since he was a boy, he was um, in during the war, you know, he'd, he'd done a picture of something he copied out from a newspaper. It was a, it was a photograph of Montgomery and he'd done it just in pencil, but you could all already see that even at the age 14, that's what he should be doing right. full time. Of course, he did a massive other jobs because he happened to be brilliant at a number of things that may have been a curse in a way because he could have gotten to uh, to art so much earlier. But it was a different era. You know, there was no family background of artists in, in, in the family, apart from one music hall star who was on my mother's side and her name was Saxon Davis and I remember my mother going she said she went backstage and it all seemed wonderful you know to, to go into a dressing room boudoir having seen her on stage and thinking oh that's it so I think my mother always wanted to be in showbiz herself and I think she settled for her sons being in 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 showbiz in a, in, a, in, a, in another sense so I think she lived it you know very much through us and she still comes to to uh, to concerts, which is lovely because she's going to be mm -hmm. ninety four in a few days' time, which wow. isn't that going? Yeah, right. You're speaking of the the lineage of art in your family, um, yeah. and it seems to be in your blood. Like I was going through your back catalogue, and there's there's hardly any gaps here. Like this is a long career, like thirtieth solo album. I got yeah. to ask, what's keeping you fired up? Surely th th it comes to a point where you think. Have I done it now? Is that it? Well, I, I don't. I don't feel that. I don't feel I've done it because there's always something that beckons you on. And now, my my wife was very well travelled. She's a writer and filmmaker, and and she was very well travelled even before I met her. Uh, Joe wanted to see the world ever since they bought her a globe as a kid, and she said, "I want to visit every place on that globe." So just recently, for instance, she took me to Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe, on time Rhodesia. Oh. And seeing those falls and, and going on safari and various other things, and, and then South Africa and Table Mountain, my first look at the falls, and it's not the biggest bit, but there's this wonderful moment where all you can see is the mist in the middle of this gorge. And it's so inspiring. Um, she swears that that's been used in one of the Tarzan films. It's, it's, but ever since I saw that, and we were both, we both felt that quickening of the spirit. We were so excited to see that. It haunted me. And, and immediately I came back, I started 
trying to work on a piece of music that would describe that. So, so it, it, in my case, it, it's a nylon guitar doing fast picking arpeggios, lots of falling things, trying to create water. Um, and and I, and I played an early version of it at, at, at the weekend because um, we, were, we were doing something in East Sussex, a place called Trading Boundaries. We were doing a couple of acoustic shows with my brother, Roger King, Rob Townsend, um, Amanda, who wasn't well, and she couldn't sing but wanted to, but she'd managed to sing the night before. But all of that, and I thought, I'll take a chance on this. You know, I said, Rob, can we do an improvised thing? So by the time I start strumming to give it more energy, um, he kicks in with, and it kind of goes flamenco. Um, he kicks in with soprano sax. So that's kind of written itself, really. And maybe that will become part of, of a future album. But, see, I've got guitar. I've got uh, both acoustic and electric. And sometimes people give me wonderful instruments to uh, experiment with. So yeah. I can't slow down. I mean, I, I was given a wonderful Peruvian instrument called a charango, and I've used that on on uh, various things. I've used it like a mandolin, and then I ended up buying a real mandolin that I used on on the album. And um, the charangos immediately start strumming it fast. It's it's the sound of the cloud forest. You 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 hear it. It's it's the Andes. It's Machu Picchu, which I've also visited again at the behest of Joe. So I've taken her around the world on on the touring circuit for rock and roll bands, but. She's taken me to, oh, just a few places, India, China, Ethiopia, and, and the list goes on, you know, uh, we must go to Peru. Yes, of course, yes, yes. You know, and I'll be, I'll be thinking, you know, how am I going to get the energy to do it? And then, you know, you take those overnight flights and you're absolutely exhausted, but then you see something like Victoria Falls, um, originally right. known as the smoke that thunders from the local locals point of view and so the world itself you know begs to be described musically so i'm, I'm doing in sound i think what my dad did in in paint and uh, so i haven't looked back really what about presenting it live like you at that yes. process has must have must have gone through your head uh, is it something now that you know oh this is what i have to do is it going to be a whole thing do you mean this particular this album? This particular album. Well, it's the first time people have said to me, are you going to do the entire album? And as far as my band knows, they're just rehearsing up three new tunes okay. at the moment. But if it takes off, because it looks like the, the video's gone viral, uh, People of the Smoke, and, and the other one's catching it up wherever you are. So um, I'm not used to hundreds of thousands of people getting interested in stuff you know some <laughs> albums are just an escape you know i mean some things i recorded with bonnie tyler and and, and um and brian may chris thompson you know that album sat on the shelf for about 11 years before it was out there so not everything is an instant thing um and so a lot of people are asking me will you do that album in its entirety and i figured that it's a bit like the challenge of when i with genesis when we did Supper's Ready. Right. It was the idea of doing something long form, but I knew that in order to do that, we had to have a light show, we had to have a mellotron, we had to have all the sound effects, all the bells and whistles, because otherwise people would just wander off to the bar. So you've got to have them rooted to the to the spot. So I, I suspect if I do this, I've got to invest heavily in visuals, and it can't be just the lights. I think it's got to be nurse the screens. It's got to be. Yeah. You know, it's got to be it's got to be the works so that people will go away with an overall impression. And I think that first video deserves to be seen in its entirety. So then we've got to make sure that we we're in sync with it. And uh, so we probably have to click the whole the whole thing. And um, yeah, that presents other other problems that my band are going to hate me for. But then <laughs> if there's a call. There's a call. I'm so I'm I'm on the cusp of wrestling with this with my conscience, thinking, you know, do I do this? We're going to be doing an Albert Hall, and it's just the sort of venue where, you know, you shouldn't be pulling your punches. How many times do you get to do the Albert Hall sure. in the course of a lifetime? Right. Before we go into horror, um, I'm going to 
uh, put this hypothetical question to you. Um, yes. With your whole back catalogue, uh, yeah. if you get the call from Francis Ford Coppola tonight and he says, we're re-releasing this film, um, yes. I would like you to uh, choose one of your tracks from your yeah. entire history to go mm -hmm. over the end credits, which would you choose? Oh, my God. Um, right. And we say, we're talking about a horror film, aren't we? A horror film, yeah. We're talking about a horror film. Well, funnily enough, you mentioned Ford Coppola, and I was going to say, you know, one of my favourites was his version of Dracula. I I really enjoyed that very much uh, for all sorts of reasons. Right at the end of it, well, God, that's a tricky one. You, you, you're putting me on the spot here. I, I would probably, if he said that it was something you've already got, uh, and I've heard this, I, I, you know, that's that's his choice. But if he asked me to design something, then I would, you know, treat it in a different way. And I, w I would love to have the chance to orchestrate a horror film. Sure. Right. You know, wouldn't mm. that be something? Oh, I would. It would. Um, right. Let's get into it. What's your history with horror? Like, was it something that you were into and invested in as a child? Yeah. Uh, I used to get into... Um, films horror films when i was 12 and i shouldn't have been allowed in but things were lax in those days you could go into a pub at 12 and order a drink no one was asking for your passport <laughs> uh that's that's how it was um so i was lucky that as a kid i looked a little bit older than i was and the, the very first one i saw i think was oliver reed in the Were werewolf movie that was one right. of his first and i gather he used to used to stay in full makeup <laughs> run around terror terrorizing motorists at night it's just you know can you imagine this guy and okay. then i also i think the second one i saw also featured him and it was paranoid um great film yeah, paranoid great film great performance by him particularly when he murders the help the woman that i think he's been having a relationship with and just decides to strangle her and it's the point of view of from the pond and it's looking up at his face through distorted through the water as he's strangling her and he just looks so convincingly evil that um, you sometimes wonder with Oliver Reed whether he was acting or not you know I mean so convincing in fact his very last appearance in Gladiator is one of the standout performances because he he is so believable. Uh, you know that he could turn any minute. He could be friendly one minute, and the next yeah. it would be that gaze. And uh, funnily enough, a pal of mine uh, spent an evening with him, met him in a pub, and he invited him back, he and a mate. And he said that, of course, he really kept them entertained until six in the morning. With He would keep going upstairs, changing into another outfit, saying, I could have been a great actor. So one minute he comes down with a claymore and a kilt and he's doing this. I could have been a great actor. He was a great actor. Yeah. You know, what a great um, uh, a screen presence. You know, think of Women in Love, the very first frame. It's him in profile. You know, he's already on fire from the word go. He is. There's, as you've mentioned, sometimes you do not know where the acting ends and the person begins. It's very... Very uncanny. Like I remember the the latter year interviews, and you could just tell by looking at his face the life that he's led, and it's fascinating yeah. just to see inside that guy's mind. Indeed, yeah, yeah. I think I think you know the shackles were off for him in a way. I think that a little bit like Lennon, you know, it seems like he was never intimidated by the medium. It seems to me it just seemed to come alive as if he was just hanging out with mates. And, you know, the more the world's cameras were on him, he'd just be himself, you know. How is that possible? I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And, and for Reed too, you know, it seems like that sort of feeling of you never quite, you know, it was always going to be surprising. It might be dangerous. It might be insulting. It would always be thrilling. From what I've read in biographies, uh, it your friend got off lucky uh, with that party. That's all I can say. Or staying over. Yeah, because, yeah. Like, it can so, be a yeah. wild card. I've heard. I've heard the stories of. Of uh, yeah, you could easily get burned 
absolutely just by hanging out but um i mean i think if i'd met him i'd be saying to him you know what an amazing performance in in so many of these of these films and you don't know you might have got he might have been great he might have been very challenging and who the hell do you think you are you know um and put people on the spot you mentioned dracula let let's yes. uh, get back there so i've sure i've rewatched all the draculas recently yes well the big three should i say so for me gary oldman and yes. this this one that we've mentioned here the francis ford coppola one he's my favorite but i'm wondering where you stand with like christopher lee in 58 or bella lugosi in 31 like where do you stand on them are they your favorites well it goes right back to nosferatu there's something frightening about about that and i i fairly recently saw a, a screening of that with live music being played on on a wow. in uh in brentford okay and at the brentford uh musical museum they they they, they did that and i saw the cabinet of dr caligari at the same time double bill and uh, i've got to admire anyone who's able to um orchestrate on the spot i mean what bigger challenge could you you have um i bet you were days. jealous sorry I bet you were jealous of that. Well, wow, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't do that. I'm, I'm not a keyboard player. I couldn't do that. But, you know, you do have, uh, that's it, organs. Organs were the early synthesizers and designed to do so much. Cool. Uh, the workings of those beasts, about 40 feet long, that's it. You know, what we now have in a box this big is was, yeah, 40 feet to have a, a piano triggered and real drums triggered and, and visionary stuff, yeah. Uh, but I, I agree with you about Oldman's performance in in that. I mean, he's such a chameleon as as an actor. You'd never know you were watching him if his name wasn't on the titles. Um, that he seems to be able to play everything um, from yeah. Churchill to um, what what was the one? Uh, uh, Sid and Nancy. Uh, Oh, um, wow. Yeah, that was yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah. How's that possible from delinquent to statesman and 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 back again? Yeah, extraordinary stuff. Yeah. And so be before we leave, <clears throat> uh, I just want to <clears throat> sort of find out about your current sort of viewing. Do you get time? Like, you're so busy with music. Do you get time to actually, like, you've just mentioned you went to see an, an, an old um, uh, film. Do you keep up with horror at all? Do you ever watch anything new? I just have to grab time when I can. So, I mean, I'll be laying in a, in a hotel room somewhere, living out of a suitcase like I do, and I might just put on a couple of minutes of TV before I pass out. And, and if I'm lucky, I'll I'll catch, you know, some of the movies that you're talking about. Funnily enough, I befriended many of the people who put together the Hammer horror movies because a, a neighbour of mine was a guy called Ralph Bates who was in um, wow. many of the... Uh, 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 Many of the movies um, playing Frankenstein, and there was a movie he was in called Doctor Jackal and Sister Hyde. So he was a close friend of mine. He passed on, and uh, he and his wife, I think, met on the set of Doctor Jackal and Sister Hyde. So he he murdered his wife before he married her, so to speak, in real life. One uh, of my favourites. I love that film. It's a great movie, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And and he he was able to play a. Um, he complained about it to me that he never got to play the hero. He was always the bastard. Sometimes his kids would switch on a movie and they'd find him hanging somebody. And and uh, <laughs> he said it really is too much at the times. And I think in one of the roles he turned down, he said, "He said I've been asked to play Hitler, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> that really is too much." Uh, but so talk about being typecast. But he was a very sweet guy. But you know, when you saw him on the screen. Um, turning on his hateful side it, it it was every bit as as convincing i think as olivier as 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 uh, richard richard the third so yeah i, I mean I, and i got to know jimmy sangster who, who wrote um right. directed and just came up with with everything for those for those films that they uh, they prided themselves on the fact that they could turn them round. i think it was about six weeks you know from Mad, isn't it? Day one, a bit like an early Genesis album. We got it down to about six weeks. 
in those days. And we still watch them now and we still listen to them now. So, yeah. And, and, they're, and they're beautiful and they're very well lit. They look wonderful. You know, it's not flat lighting. It's warm. Flesh tones are good. Whether it's we're watching it. Christopher Lee or, or The Young Lovelies, you know, it's it's very and warm. Smoke in the graveyards. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Steve. Um, again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, lovely, Paul. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really enjoy it. Thanks. Many thanks to Steve Hackett for coming on to the show there. Fantastic stuff indeed. I hope you agree. Uh, but you see, we didn't dig that deep into Bram Stoker's Dracula, did we? So as a bit of a top-up, as I've already mentioned, here's a little rewind. Please welcome back to the show Lauren Jane Barnett, the author of Deathlines, Walking London's Horror History. I could listen to her speak all day. So, Bram Stoker's Dracula. This is the one that I first saw at Dreamland Cinema in Margate on the first week of its UK release. The theatre was packed. It was full of young adults just like myself. I would say that there was probably a handful of people younger than the actual 18 years of age you had to be to get in. Uh, and I imagine most were there just to see Winona or Keanu. I personally remember it just being this wonderful thing to watch. It was so operatic, it was so long, it felt so huge and so important to me at the time. I think you only get a few of those films in your life and, and history hasn't painted it in such a kind way as I felt then, but I still think this is an epic, epic film. There was so much in-camera trickery, the mice running along upside down, that's just one example. I mean, there were loads of on-screen, in-screen effects. And Keanu's performance, it is one of those so bad it's good performances. He's got that terrible English accent, and of course Gary Oldman does actually act rings around him. Uh, but the thing is, nobody dislikes Keanu. Nobody dislikes him because he's just such a cool guy. And you know what? When I watch this movie, I've actually got no problem watching him at all. There are so many movies that I watch every single week, without a doubt, where Keanu would be able to act rings around them. I cannot hold that against this movie. But there is a thing that nickels at me. I mean, why does Keanu not react to any of the really weird shit that's happening? Dracula crawling down walls, ink that floats upwards. He just doesn't seem phased by it at all. And I often wondered to myself, was that actually a direction from Francis Ford Coppola? Did he actually say, don't express any emotions whatsoever? Did he do that? Did he stitch up Keanu Reeves? What else can I say? Um, well, the orgy scene. That's really delving into 70s exploitation. It's horror for sure, but for me, really, it is a massive love story. Winona is the key as she plays Mina. And let me say this again, because I do think it's important. It is, to me, a love story. When she is actually turning, it's another epic piece of cinema. It's so well crafted. The score just brings the whole thing to life. Whew, it's immense. And of course, as well as all the above, I've got to mention again Gary Oldman. Just a force of nature. It's such a fantastic performance. And the costume department, they've just given him such an unusual dress compared to the other Dracula movies. Uh, not like Bella Lugosi, not like Christopher Lee, with all the capes and whatnot. In fact, when I think about this... Now, I've definitely made my mind up. Gary Oldman, he is my favourite Dracula. And just don't get me started about that shadow puppet opening, the introduction thing which points to him being Vlad the Impaler and how that's not actually what should be happening with Dracula. I'm cool with anything. But when you boil it all down, I just think this is a film lover's film. This is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Here occurred the frightening and shocking history of Prince Dracula and the woman he loved. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Yeah, Dracul. There is a sinister, darker side to him. I 
find irresistible. I have never met any man with such a passion for life. He is unlike any man. What are you? Vampires do exist. This one we fight, this one we face. Can take on many forms. He is both young and old. He can appear as mist, as vapor, as the fog. And he can vanish at will. Oh, my love. The power of his evil desire has no end. I wanted to reach out to Dr. Lauren Jane Barnett. I discovered her myself when I happened upon that fantastic podcast she does. It's called London Horror Movie Club. Her personal takes on London-centric horror movies are just full of the exact type of analysis that I love. So, with all this being said, here's Lauren Jane Barnett's thoughts on Bram Stoker's Dracula. London has long been a home for horror. The great writers of gothic novels lived here or set their eerie tales in the city's labyrinth of streets. Some of their monsters were born from the city, and others pursued it. The great Gothic vampire, Dracula, may have been from Transylvania, but his goal was to take over London. In the 1880s, when the book was written, London was the center of an empire, and so the perfect outpost from which you could take over the world. It was also filled with immigrants, making it easy for Dracula to slip in and hide. But the city itself also suited monsters. It was the home of Jack the Ripper, Bedlam Asylum, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and it even had its own native ghosts. Though London was central to the book, Dracula, only a handful of movies have sent the villain there. It even took Hammer a few years to do so. But in 1992, a film came out where Dracula not only returned to London, but he seemed to be able to work the city, as though they shared some deep, horrifying connection. I'm speaking of Francis Ford Coppola's romantic horror film, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I'm excited for the chance to speak about it in this episode of A Year in Horror. For those unfamiliar, the film is, as the title suggests, an adaptation of Stoker's gothic novel, in which Count Dracula comes to England to be reunited with the incarnation of his long-dead wife. This mysterious wife is, in fact, Mina, the fiancé of John Harker, whom Dracula lures into his castle and kidnaps, and then heads to London in a trail of death, demonic forces, and destruction in his desire for Mina. The film shifts the focus onto Dracula and his quest for love rather than the original story in which John Harker and Van Helsing team up as forces for good, fighting the purely evil Dracula. This love story made the film unique, and it was certainly at the forefront of the advertising for the film, but how well does it stand up as a horror film? When Bram Stoker's Dracula came out in 1992, director Francis Ford Coppola had an arguably unfair reputation for high-budget disappointment, so many people in the industry didn't really expect much of the film, and it was even dubbed Bonfire of the Vampires. It was also a departure from mainstream horror movies that were popular at the time, so it was a real risk in terms of subject matter. You have to remember this was the early 90s, so at this point slasher films had been done and overdone, and people had very strong expectations in that direction. Think 80s B-movies or slashers, low on plot, high on murder. The gothic horror film, like Dracula, had been long dead. It was seen as cliché and even a bit boring basically since the 1970s. In fact, a lack of interest in gothic horror films is part of why Hammer Films really struggled after the 70s and eventually closed its doors. So really, Coppola's grasping on the gothic horror at the time was a bit of a risk. Despite the odds against it, the film was critically well-received, and it went on to win three Academy Awards for costuming, sound editing, and makeup. A big draw for the film, and certainly one of the film's advantages, were the actors. Gary Oldman as Dracula is the lead and central driver of the film, and he's simply amazing. I should confess, I am a huge fan of Gary Oldman. I have loved him since I saw The Fifth Element. But this film shows how great his range is. It really creates a character that's versatile, but also has a really strong impact on the viewer. 
that I think is a true testament to his skill that in one scene you'll find him physically disgusting and then in another you'll find him alluring and attractive. If you haven't seen the film and you're a fan of Gary Oldman, you will really enjoy his performance. I think it's definitely one of his best. He's very talented and this is an early example of how great and versatile an actor he is. The rest of the cast is essentially an ensemble, but standing out from that is, of course, Winona Ryder's character, Mina, because she's the love interest of Dracula, and then her boyfriend, fiance, and then husband, John Harker, played by Keanu Reeves. When talking about this film, Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves are often talked about together. A consistent criticism I've heard of the film is about casting them because both play their characters in an understated, and some people have used the term wooden, way. I don't completely disagree with this, there are certainly moments that feel underplayed and wooden, but while some people find it distracting, this acting or casting choice is one of the elements that's taken directly from the novel, so I have a certain amount of respect for it. Mina in the novel is the picture of muted innocence, and the whole point of her is to contrast her with her friend Lucy. Both are presented as cliche options for a woman in the Victorian era. Lucy, with her flirtation and admirers, is the sinner, the prostitute, and Mina, virtuous, very quiet, led by her husband, is basically the saint or the virgin. And in the film, they also emphasize this. Lucy is very highly sexualized and very active and very vibrant. She even has bright red hair. Mina is very much emphasized in her virginity in the film up until Dracula seduces her and her innocence is a huge part of it. All of her costumes are much more tightly presented, her hair is more tightly done. You do need her to be a bit more dull and, and I think it works in the film. Kina Reeves is similarly supposed to be very milquetoast, conservative, in contrast in the book to Dracula. If you think about the book, Harker is boring and plain to the extreme. The book opens with Harker's diary description of various train lines and timetables. This is not a riveting man, and he needs to be dull because he is the contrast to all that is more vibrant, more emotional, more visceral, and more bodily about Dracula, and that translates even into the film. Dracula is sin, whereas Harker is virtue. You need this contrast, and so if Gary Oldman's character is going to be seductive and interesting and emotional and let some emotion out of his face, you really have to rein back Harker and make sure he doesn't. Of course, all that said, the other thing to talk about with these two characters is their British accents. Both have weaker accents. Winona Ryder's is a little bit inconsistent and a little bit muted, and of course everyone knows that Keanu Reeves had a, well, a, a, a very inconsistent and shall we say less appropriate British accent. I believe he's been nominated on a list of the poorest British accents, and I can understand it. It can be a little bit distracting, and in some moments he loses his accent, and that can be slightly frustrating. So that may not help an argument for these characters otherwise being more muted, because the strong thing you'll think about then is their accent. John and Mina, whatever you think about them, though, don't detract from the stellar supporting cast. Anthony Hopkins is grand in it. And you also see some very talented people surrounding Lucy, including Richard Grant, who plays uh, one of the boyfriends and a sort of drug-addicted psychologist. Also, near Lucy, you have Carrie Elwes. He's excellent as being the sort of pretty boy with no sense. Another highlight is Tom Waits. He is eerie and grotesque as Dracula's mentally unbalanced minion. It's a fantastic part and it requires quite a lot because very often he's alone or with only one other person, so he needs to carry those scenes and he absolutely does. And that naturally brings us to the question of how this movie stands as a horror film, because no matter how strong an actor you have, if the film itself doesn't scare you, doesn't make you creeped out, doesn't give you that horror sense, it, it falls short as a horror film. This film's more likely to track well with fans of old, and by that I mean pre-1970s horror, because the film's really a love letter to those classic older horror movies. The first most obvious thing when you watch it is how vivid the color and how very carefully thought out the color is, and you get these amazing lurid reds, and you think immediately Eastman color. So there's a bit of a visual homage there. You also have The Old Dark House, which harkens back all the way through the Universal horror films and even into some of the silence, think London after midnight. There are also more sort of direct references or, or at least sort of links to older horror films. There's a line in the film, I never drink wine, and that's from 1931 Dracula, where obviously the implication is he drinks 
blood. Harker's carriage ride to Dracula's castle was inspired by a similar scene in the 1960 horror Black Sunday. And then there's also something about seeing the wolf Dracula, particularly when the camera sees from his, the werewolf's perspective as it comes up to the house and moves through the grounds. It's very reminiscent of American Werewolf in London and of other horror films, but I thought of that one because it was only sort of a decade before. So I think people who are fans of older horror movies might get quite a lot out of seeing this movie, maybe even more than people who don't know about all that background. Alongside these references, there are also different layers of horror scattered throughout the film. There are some really good moments of the weird. For example, John Harker has a scene where he's being seduced by female vampires early in the film, and it's absolutely supposed to be weird, surreal, almost even psychedelic. It's very strange, but in that way, unsettling. They do particularly great work with Dracula's shadow. This might be one of my favorite aspects of the horror film. The shadow sort of has a life of its own. You see that very early on. I'll, I'll talk about it, that scene a little bit later. But it's able to, as it reaches across, move objects, wilt flowers. It even feeds off Lucy's blood. So the shadow is in some ways a controlled entity that has a life of its own. There are also a handful of jump scares. Dracula, for example, moves around quite a lot. And there's a particularly good one with the wolf attack on Lucy where it comes to an end with this huge crashing wave of blood, which reminded me of The Shining. And on that note, there are some really strong special effects, the kind of thing you might expect from sort of good horror, well-funded well horror, including people crawling on the walls, lots of sprays of blood. The werewolf is incredibly creepy. This is a, a feat of sort of makeup. He does seem like a wolf man. They do that very well. There's human aspects to the face. It makes it very uncanny and very disturbing to see. It's It's almost a sort of more upsetting version of the werewolf that you would see in things like American Werewolf in London. And there is also, of course, that particularly intense staking scene. So anybody who's just looking for buckets of blood, you absolutely will get them. But on balance, the film doesn't hold a continued sense of dread or mounting horror. These horror moments I'm talking about are definitely scattered throughout, but they seem isolated almost, or, or there's a jarring sense of them being disconnected because the sting's taken out of them when the next scene is a much slower pace. It's not to say that the horror scenes aren't good, well done, scary, classic, but I don't think they're as strong strung together. More generally, though, as a movie, this film is beautifully directed and shot. It's filled with a great sense of time and place. And part of why I enjoy this movie is that Coppola really captures the importance of London in the book and translates it into the visual magic of the city on film. The movie is, is, I think, does this so well that several scenes are in my upcoming book, Death Lines, for exactly that reason. You can tell even early on in the film that London is essential to Dracula's plan. There's a scene where his shadow uh, sort of attacks Harker. So both of them are sitting in Dracula's castle and Harker's finishing the paperwork on selling him Carfax Abbey. And as they talk, there's a map of London behind them. It's there because Dracula's buying houses throughout the city, essentially kind of colonizing different areas of London. But as they discuss this, Dracula's shadow, moving on its own, starts to attack Harper. And as it does, it reaches across London. And then at the very end of the scene, it swoops up London with a swoop of its cape. He completely engulfs London. And you get that great foreshadowing that that's what he's supposed to be doing. He's taking over London. That's really a recollection back to the book, which is what his original goal is, but you immediately get the sense that London's going to be important. And so then when he actually arrives in London, you get this really great, vivid, visual capturing of London at the time. And the detail with which they present London and the scenes that are set in London really show how central it is to Dracula's plan, and it also sets the mood because, of course, when you think of Victorian London, you immediately get the Gothic atmosphere, and they do a great job of getting Victorian London, the Gothic London, right? You know, gas lamps, cobbled streets, things you've been seeing since the 1927 silent film The Lodger. Coppola's also really done his homework on London at the time, and you see this in particular in the scene where Dracula and Mina meet on the streets of London, and then they go to a demonstration of, of film. So this is actually shot on an outdoor lot in California. It's all set pieces, but the interaction and the actual going to see a demonstration of, of the very first films is based on a real historic event. 
1896 at the Royal Polytechnic Institute, the Lumiere brothers first exhibited the new technology of film. And they did this by displaying it and allowing people to come and see it almost like a sideshow. You'd buy tickets. And that's exactly what Mina and Dracula do. There's also a nice parallel between the concept of cinema and Mina and Dracula's darted glances and their unspoken moments. It's the lure and seduction of silent film in these seductive silent moments between them. Another much briefer Great London reference is the London Zoo. So as Dracula crosses the channel, there's this huge storm and we, we cut to a gate, the gate of London Zoo in the pouring rain and you hear these animals cry out. It's, it's a very eerie and, and in fact sort of creepy scene. And then we see a wolf escape the zoo and the wolf becomes a sort of useful companion for Dracula. But that moment's also a great horror Easter egg because the wolves of London Zoo appear in other horror movies. The first one was the 1930s film Werewolf of London, where again, the wolves of the zoo sort of are supposed to escape. And then much later in the 1981 American Werewolf in London, David wakes in the cage alongside the other wolves. So the London Zoo has these other horror moments, in particular London wolves. So the London Zoo is a quick moment, but it's a great long-term horror reference. And the other fun London reference in this is, of course, the asylum. Though it isn't named, with its dingy prison-like conditions and questionable practices, it's very clear that the asylum in Dracula, both the book and the movie, is based on Beth Elm Hospital, better known as Bedlam. The horrors of being a patient at Bedlam inspired other horror movies, including one called Bedlam, but both the film and Dracula novel are calling on that infamous hospital at a time when it was supposedly at its worst. So you're expecting there to be kind of extremes and really uh, it gives its own gothic frightening atmosphere because it's known for pain and brutality. And of course, it reminds you that London is the city where people are, are already being tortured in the name of science. People are already at the hands of others, not just Dracula, in London. Indeed, throughout the film, Dracula is able to sort of use London. He works with the city to help his plan to seduce Mina. He hides in the crowds to get away from John Harker. He uses restaurants, streets, sideshows, and even the animals of London to bring Mina to him and to cultivate their affection. Everything about London conspires to help Dracula. And I think, in some ways, it feels like Dracula is meant to be in London. One of the things I loved about writing and researching Deathlines was I was trying to understand what is it about London that lends itself to horror. And of course, there are so many things. I've even mentioned it a bit already. There's this great history. There's all this interesting literature. There's a lot of diversity for directors to draw on. But if I'm 100% honest, there's also something ephemeral, something I can't really explain, but I can feel it. It made London feel like it was the right setting for evil, and so many of the films do that, and I think this film does it very well. You get that same sensation or instinct that London's right for these kind of monsters. This is where, of course, Dracula would go. And so when you watch it, you see, you feel that horror is in London's blood. So having now talked about a lot of different aspects of the film, would I recommend it? The honest answer is yes, but not to everyone. This is not a film without its flaws, and I have made sure I've, I've tried to talk about them. Uh, I mentioned pacing, and I really think a huge part of that is that the film's a bit too long. I think a good strong edit, some tightening of the film, will make it feel more even, more engaging. I, of course, also mentioned the issue of sort of British accents, and there's some questions for you personally to decide whether you would watch it because of the casting choices. And finally, something I haven't mentioned is that for a film called Bram Stoker's Dracula, it definitely picks and chooses what it takes from the book. Though in many small ways it's very faithful, more so than other films, the heart of this film is romance, and that Dracula is this man who's desperately in love, who you can almost sympathize with. Both of those ideas are completely absent from the book. I don't mind this. I suspect my taste is generally felt because there is a desire for sexy vampires, romance vampires at the moment, so maybe other people won't care about this as well. 
but it's worth mentioning because mainstream Dracula films and books are very different in this respect. Dracula is definitely more of a lover, and so if you, like me, tend to prefer non-romantic movies, this might be a harder sell for you. But for all of those small things, I feel I can recommend it certainly to fans of older horror movies. If you like Hammer and Amicus films, you can handle the slower pace. If you're somebody who does like romance horror genre, definitely I think you'd enjoy it. If you're somebody who can handle having, you know, an imperfect horror movie but that has a lot of interesting things to see, to watch, and some really good moments, I think you'll enjoy it. But if your horror movies are the really high-octane horror movies, you probably won't find this as satisfying, so I may not recommend it to you. As for me, it isn't in my top 10, but I do have a real affection for Bram Stoker's Dracula because it's beautiful to look at and it has great visual effects and it captures some of that magic of London horror. But most of all, because Coppola shows a great respect for the generations of horror that came before it. And he did so at a time when horror really had, had a struggle going on after the big slasher movement. It shows, and maybe even reminded people, that there is so much to love about the horror film. And on that note, thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure to talk about this rather unusual London horror film. I'm Lauren Barnett, and you're listening to A Year in Horror. Thank you so much to Lauren Jane Barnett. She put this one together for us at the last minute's notice for A Year in Horror. We were going to have just a regular chat, but due to me having such a full schedule, when we missed our aligned date, I just couldn't rebook it. So she did this instead. As you just heard, amazing stuff. Thank you again, Lauren. But I hear you say, what is that rather wonderful score that you're playing? Well, let me enlighten you. That is a snippet from the soundtrack of Bram Stoker's Dracula, and it was composed by Wozczek Keeler. This thing is just as rich and all-encompassing as the movie is. It's a huge piece. It's so grand in its execution, I can't even fathom how much it would have cost to put the thing together. There is a full orchestra here which leans really heavily into classic Hollywood and that sort of era and beyond. I just wish I had the booklet, I had the actual thing so I could tell you which actual instruments weren't utilised because I can tell you there were way more that were than weren't. It runs for a total of 55 minutes and when you finish it and you just sit back and think, hmm, that was something, it just feels like Keeler left not one opportunity unchecked, not one stone unturned. Before I go on, I can hear so many birds going mental outside. The windows have to be open. I'm actually recording this during that massive heat wave. And oh, it's killing me. Now, back to the soundtrack. And just like the film, this is as romantic as it is horrific as well. And just listen to the end credits for the evidence of that. My favourite thing about it, though, is when the traditional feel of the romantic strings, they're just in full flow... They get juxtaposed more often than not with that lower gothic and heartbreaking sort of melodrama. The strings are are really deep all of a sudden. Those more malevolent parts, such as on Love Eternal, that's where it really, really picks up for me. But I would say as a caveat, if you're here for something that sounds fresh and original and maybe breaks the mould of what came before it, then just look elsewhere. This is a traditional horror score, as you would find on any Hammer Horror production. It's not reinventing the wheel, but it's making sure that the wheels are the best on the block. And where can you watch this film? Well, in the UK, you can stream it for free on Yup! and Virgin TV Go. And if you happen to live in the USA, then it's just on Yup! It's still available as a DVD and Blu-ray, of course, and you can get it pretty cheap. You know what to do. As for podcasting, well, there are a couple here, but please be aware that I haven't actually listened to either of them yet. Uh, They're just on my phone awaiting for that fateful day that I dig in. So we're going to start with my first recommendation, and that is The Blood Buddies. They had their say on Bram Stoker's Dracula 
in July of 2019. And then for something a little bit more recent, why not try out the VHS Strikes Back? That was from February of 2022. And there you have it. Once again, many thanks to Steve Hackett and also Lauren Jane Barnett. I'm going to see you lot soon for further adventures on A Year in Horror. Please, please take care of yourselves. Thank you.